We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped gum to teeth in your throat, tiger, without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I'm Jaren Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hi all, I'm Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, the only podcast show where we take life by the tail. Here with me today is Deanna Wan, a retired Air Force colonel, physicist, and founder of Keynotes to Life, a holistic health coaching business that specializes in people with cancer. Deanna, you have an incredible story, and I am so grateful that you were willing to share it with our audience today. Oh, thanks so much, Jared. Thanks for having me here on your show. Now, when we first met, our conversation turned from the casual, what do you do, to a story you started to tell me. And I wanted to begin there because it is a, it's a question I think we all find difficult and hope we never have to answer. What do you do when you only have a month left to live? That's a good question. Uh, it's a question that really caught me off guard at the time. But what I ended up doing was really examining my life, looking back at my entire life, and really wanting to come to a place of peace um, in every aspect of my life from, you know, the relationships, the friendships. Um, and so I went back through my life, contacted all the people in my life, and um, just really wanted to reconnect, um, feel a sense of peace, and be able to, because I felt like this peace would really help me to uh, confront my pending mortality. And so it was really a journey. I mean, just from being told you have one month to live. I did a lot of soul searching. Mm -hmm. I really tapped into the spiritual side of me. I wanted to be in communion with God because I felt like it was a very lonely part of my journey here on earth because you know, all the people around me who were healthy, uh, there was no way that they could possibly understand or feel, and nor did I expect them to know what I was going through. And so I know, I, I just knew at the time I needed a, a deeper sense spiritually of the transformation that would take place. What was that moment of diagnosis like? When you were first told not only that you have cancer, but the terminal kind, and now soon you're going to die. It was terrifying for me. I was so fearful after hearing the C word that that night after my oncologist had told me the news, I could not sleep. I was crying all through the night because I felt like not only was I going to die, but I was going to die a horrific and painful death, one of suffering. And you're you're trained. You're a military colonel in the Air Force. This is meeting your end is something you are supposed to be prepared for, but this isn't the way they had trained you, is it? Or what they had trained you for? Right, right. I mean, there, there's just no way. Um, I was, I think I was about 45 years old at the time, and you know, to hear that diagnosis, it just really just felt like the carpet was getting pulled up from under me. Of course, in the military, you know, you, you do kind of come to terms with, you know, you might be killed in action or something like that. But 
that's entirely different than, you know, being told that, you know, you, you may not be around for long because of a diagnosis, because of a, a disease. Did it feel like your choice of when or the possibility of when it had been taken away from you? It's one thing to serve and within the realm of that course of action, find yourself in mortal danger. It's, as you're saying, quite different to be told, no, there's no choice here. Yes, yes, I, I believe it is different. I mean, it, it's one thing, you know, to feel like, you know, I'm I'm doing something, a service for my country. Uh, you know, I might be at, you know, whatever location, you know, in the world. And, you know, it's expected that there are inherent dangers, but um, it's entirely different thing to suddenly, I mean, for me, getting diagnosed with cancer, it felt like it came out of nowhere because, you know, I had taught, I was a nationally uh, certified fitness instructor for Mm -hmm. eight years, Uh, you know, being in the military, you know, just getting the the physical checks and, you know, being tested physically. uh, I really felt like I was in the prime of my life. And so uh, that was just quite a shock. When they when they give you the diagnosis, did they walk you through what that month would be like? What what you would experience, what you would have to endure? I would have to say that none of my medical doctors actually <laughs> prepared me and in fact <laughs> wow. you're going to laugh at this too because when my doctor put me into hospice she didn't actually explain to me what hospice meant. And I actually did not even understand it myself. She just explained it to me and says, well, you know, since your both your lungs are collapsed and filled with fluid, uh, putting you in hospice will just enable me to, you know, provide you, you know, with an oxygen. I was on an oxygen machine. Enable me, the doctor, not you. Uh, Right. But she was trying to help me. um, And and I, you know, that's how I took it. And I, I thought it was a great thing, um, and it wasn't until <laughs> and my cousin was the one who actually eventually explained to me what hospice really meant, and I, I thought, wow. Um, but there was one person who did kind of quite accurately actually um, told me what would come with my you know collapsed lungs and, and the fluid that was accumulating, and so... You know, he he was a naturopathic doctor, mm-hmm. um, and, and and he was the one who quite accurately kind of prepared me for what was to come. When you were in service, were there any moments that you felt like your life or a part of you was in immediate or imminent danger, or was this, despite all the training, was this something new to you? Well, you know, one of my assignments was uh, to Turkey uh, when it was considered hazardous duty at the mm-hmm. time. And, um, you know, when I arrived there, they, they told me that actually uh, my, my predecessor was actually assassinated mm. and uh, there was always bombings that were going off. And, you know, I, I learned to, to deal with that. You kind of learn where, you know, not to be. And and so so it's it's really a matter of of just uh, mitigating risk, mm-hmm. you know, and exposure. Um, so, yes, I, I've had to kind of face, um, you know, that sort of thing, you know. So you had fear, and they were genuine, substantiated fears, but there were ways to, as you said, to mitigate it, to reduce the risk of them coming true. When you get this diagnosis, what were you most afraid of? I was most afraid of, like I said, just dying a painful and horrific death of suffering. I want to dig there. So if you're, if you're okay with me poking a little further, we can. If not, tell me. I'm Either's fine. I'm sure, you know, this is really 
I mean, I've done so many interviews, but I have to say, you, you ask some very deep questions. And I, <laughs> that's a really awesome. <laughs> Thank you. It's it's. I love not just the stories people tell, but who they are and why they tell them. I find these experiences define us, or we use them to define us. And I think to one of, to your point and part of the work you do, people often find themselves caught in a story that they feel either not an agent in or defined by. So I'm I'm curious to see how you rewrote this experience of your life. Mm-hmm. Suffering is awful. It doesn't. There's no way truly to quantify it that makes it. This is meaningful. I find. But what was it about that pain? What was it about? Was it the loss of physical agency? The loss of time you would have with your friends, your loved ones, and your family? What was this taking away from you? What fear were you no longer able to mitigate or control? For me, I think I had a real fear of pain. Mm. Um, you know, uncontrollable pain. Because I, when I first found out I had cancer, there was that uncontrollable pain to the point where even when they put me on a morphine IV, it did not even take the edge of the pain away. And that was rather disconcerting to me. So this is stage Um, four? Yes. Mm. And um, the other thing was I felt like there were dreams that I had, what I wanted to do with my life, that I felt like I hadn't really been able to even you know, set forth doing, you know, I, here I was, I think at the time I was about 23 years into my military career. And so I thought, well, I served my country and that's basically it. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to be able to live to see my retirement or anything. There there were so many more things I wanted to do with, you know, my friends and family, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just goals that I had with what I wanted to do with my life. That question of, is this it? Is this everything I get? And why? Yes, it's everything that I get. It, you know, this appears to be the cards that I've been dealt. I guess there's no more. You know, that's kind of what it felt like. You described to me earlier your professional training as a matter of making timely decisions, often without knowing with certainty the outcome. So being in frightful or uncertain situations and working through that, what helped you apply that experience to this moment in your life? How were you able to move from that point of fear of making decisions based on guilt or negative emotions of what you could or wouldn't, you wouldn't have or wouldn't be provided to you to, all right, fine, I have a month, what do I do with this? I realized that, you know, I I had to come to terms with my fears and it's okay to experience the fears. I think it's real. I, I don't think it's good to suppress it. And so I allowed it to happen, to flow through my body But at a certain point in time, that's what I felt like I had to do research, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and and that's, I guess, as a scientist, you know, and just my training in the military, it's like, okay, when you're confronted with a problem, you know, learn as much as you can and then make a decision on, you know, how you want to deal with it. Um, And so for me, the decisions that I made to try to heal in a way that would honor what I felt like was the innate wisdom that's already designed in our bodies. Hmm. Nothing is a hundred percent. There were no guarantees. And so I did a lot of research. I found a lot of research that actually uh, showed the effectiveness of some of these uh, supposedly unproven techniques, you know, Um, and I was willing to try it, you know, but I knew it was not a hundred percent. And, you know, I, I went to different uh, places to really to learn how to really study under people who were, you know, who had an expertise in this, who had seen thousands of people, you know, with end stage disease recover. 
And and that's what I wanted. I I, I wanted to not look at the statistics, which um, for ovarian cancer, for someone, you know, to have gone through conventional medical treatment, I think it was like an 8.9% survival rate at the Ooh. five-year point. So that was very low, you know, and some of the places I went to, they had a, a 20% um, survival rate. And so although that seemed low as well, it was better than the 8.9. <laughs> I'll take the 12. I'll take the bonus 12. <laughs> That's right. I've, I've lived through moments of this with other family before. Sometimes it's gone one way, sometimes it's gone the other. But that that ability is both to look into, to reflect and to laugh, to be able to still have a sense of humor and say, well, you know what, why not? Maybe it is ephemeral, but maybe it will work for me. And to go to your doctors who have their expectations based on their research and their evidence and go, right, but it's still my life. And I'm still the one who gets to decide things about that. And that's a really important point that you bring up because I really felt like this is the decision that I have to make because it's my body, you know, um, and, you know, I don't believe in turning over the responsibility and authority of my body over to anyone because, you know, be it a doctor, researcher, whoever, they don't have to live in my body and deal with the consequences mm. of whatever they're recommending, you know, recommending. I'm reminded of a story from a friend of mine. She was trying to figure out how to deal with her adopted child and found a piece of comfort through something shared online, strangely, which is not common. People share many things on Facebook. Usually outside of animal memes, they're not comforting. But in this particular <laughs> case, it was a small child who had lost her toy bunny at grandma's house. And as many children are wont to do at that age, they made demands to go back the hours back and across state borders, retrieve said bunny that night. To which her parents said, no, because that's too far and we'll get it tomorrow. Grandma, you know, it's not going where grandma has the bunny. So they get home. The child is distraught and crying, goes to bed, wakes them up in the middle of the night. But the reason I bring it up is that she says one, there's one line. Finally, when they get her to calm down and she's lying in bed with them, that strikes them as just so encompassing of human experience. The child says, and they say, well, why are you upset? And she says, well, I, I don't know. Am I going to be sad forever? Because in that point of your life, permanence is the only way things are. Things are until they're not. And if I'm sad, then do I get to the point of rethinking that I've been sad for so long that I don't know how to be anything but sad? And we think of that as a childlike way of viewing things. But when we get told you've got a month to live, it's so easy to find yourself, even if it's not a life or death moment, but in something that extreme emotionally of when did I forget that I don't have to be this way? Yeah, and I, I did feel, I mean, just a sadness that is even, it's difficult to describe in words, you know, just a sadness of the loss of dreams and hopes and, mm -hmm. you know, just the ability to spend time with the people I loved. Let's talk about that for a moment, because it, it seems so weird to feel sad about a thing that has not or never will or may never happen. But there is a certain kind of pain that is the loss of a future. That's right. What did you have planned? What did you want to do? What What were the things you had set out that year or the years to come that were yours to accomplish? Well, at the time, I thought that, you know, when I retired from the military, I wanted to actually go to music school hmm. uh, because I played a piano. And that had been a longtime dream of mine. You know, I, I, I wanted to, you know, maybe have a relationship and, and, and have, make a family. Um, you know, all the things that I just really had not had heretofore. And so it's just 
different things like that. And to be able to spend time with my immediate family, whom I had been away from all these years because I was serving all over the world, um, you know, in the military. It strikes me thinking of what you're sharing and the stories I've heard before. Physical pain, even if it's prolonged and intense, even if it's medicated, it still seems in some way temporary. I'll take this, it'll remove that, but emotional seems to hold and last forever. I won't have this life, I won't have this future. I have cancer, now I'm going to die. And then somehow in this process of research, you find the thing that makes you wonder, ask, or am I? Life is malleable. That's right. And I, I really came to believe that each day, each moment in time, it holds an infinite potential of possibilities for change. And so I actually kind of developed a hope that seemed to almost defy logic. <laughs> <laughs> have you read Ecclesiastes? Uh, yes, I have. Okay. There are some interesting translations of it, but I always think back to that interpretation of whether it's vanity of vanities or emptiness of emptiness, whether it is a, a glorious exultation or a complaint. Mm. If everything is empty, then does that mean I'm free or does that mean nothing has anything to it? And I, I, I hold that story in mind when I think of the apocryphal tale of King Solomon's ring. I don't know if you've heard this in particular one. It was a riddle someone had given him or that he had wanted to punish a servant with. He said, I want you to find a thing, an answer to this riddle. What can make any sad man happy, any happy man sad? I'm paraphrasing here. And he sends in one version this loyal soldier who perhaps has been with one of his many wives or not. He suspects it. And when you're king, perhaps that's enough. But as a punishment, he sends this fellow off on a Herculean-like journey and hopes and expects he'll never return. Until finally, it's sometime many years later, the soldier finally does and carries with him a small golden ring on which is inscribed the phrase, Gamze Yavor, this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. What can make any man who is happy sad and any man who is sad finally happy? Yes, and it's interesting you bring that up because that is a phrase that I used personally when I was experiencing some really? of the worst. Yes, this too shall pass. Did you turn it into kind of a mantra? Like, or at what point did it go from huh, a thought to a mantra to a thing I'm going to try living, doing, and being? It started fairly early in my cancer journey. I mean, just when I realized that that morphine was not doing anything to relieve my pain, <laughs> that's when no. I knew I had to tap a little bit deeper. And so I did something that I heard Deepak Chopra once say is, wherever you're experiencing pain in the body, breathe into that space mm. and send it love and compassion. And so I did that. And it took me six hours. <laughs> mm -hmm. But after the six hours, the pain completely resolved on its own. And so that was a start of really tapping into just a deeper, uh, you know, it was a spiritual journey where whenever things got to the point where it seemed like I could no longer bear the pain, you know, the inability to breathe, I told myself, this too shall pass. And the other thing I did was I realized that, you know, um, there was a French philosopher, I think his name is Pierre de Tailleur, but he basically said that we're, we're spirits having a human experience. <laughs> and so I, I really clung to that, mm -hmm. to, to that part of my being. And I knew what I told myself was that, you know, although it appears that my physical body is deteriorating, my spirit will live forever. It's, it's so funny. You 
I don't know if you've read, for instance, uh, Thomas Merton or Rumi, but they, they speak of the idea of, of mistaking yourself for the drop of water that is in the body of the ocean that is the ocean. Mm-hmm. And that it is so easy to think of yourself as being the drop of water lost in the body of water without forgetting that you are still the water. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yes. How did you move from this experience to the wisdom that you now try to present and impart to others? When did this become a process that you could give to someone else? Or how did you make it become that? Well, when I first got diagnosed, interestingly enough, that's actually when I also decided to enroll myself in the uh, Institute for Integrative Nutrition. Mm-hmm. And I did that because I, I wanted to learn not only about you know nutrition and all that, but a deeper form of nutrition, which is, you know, relationships and, you know, emotional wellness, all these things that really contribute to our health. Um, I did that for myself because I wanted to know how to heal at a deeper level. And when I went into hospice, that's when I could no longer continue that program. The school was very supportive. You know, Mm -hmm. they said, well, just call us back when when you're able to. And I had to start the program all over, of course. Mm -hmm. But that was when when I recovered, that's when I completed the program because I really felt like I, I really truly believe that I was given a second chance at life. And it's not just for me. It's really for the many people out there who need hope, who need to know that there are things that you can do proactively to really shift uh, your ability to survive uh, what seems like a dire you know, um, you know, point of no return. What did the doctors say when after a month you were still alive? They were, they were shocked. Um, they, they were happy, you know, they, sure. they, they, they couldn't believe uh, that I had survived. And they would told, they told me that one of them told me that it, it was a flat out miracle. And, you know, I've had other researchers, um, you know, some of whom were cancer researchers at Johns Hopkins say to me that, it really was miraculous um, because of just where I was, my, my state. You know, I've, I've talked to palliative care nurses and doctors who, when they saw me, you know, saw pictures of what I looked like, they said, you know, you were dying. And I think that's important to know. It's one thing to talk about your experience of them in your life, how their characters in your existence, how they tell you, give you this prognosis, and how that changes you. It's another to think, too, about how you are someone in their life and how... It is for them to spend day in and day out facing people who are dying and trying to and say to them, yes, we're trying, but yes, we're trying. Well, yes. And actually, there is a the hospice chaplain um, for me when I was in hospice. Um, he has since, you know, told me that going through that experience with me has actually changed how he now deals with um, hospice patients. How so? Basically, because... It, you know, it, it looked like to him and to everyone else in my hospice team that I was dying and mm-hmm. they were there simply to make me comfortable for my death. And so he actually was asked by some of the other people on the team, you know, is Deanna being realistic in her hope in what she's doing with, you know, the nutrition, mm-hmm. working with the therapist and... And this is something that he shared with me that I, I, I almost really forgot about it, I guess, <laughs> that I, what I was going through. Because then he came to ask me, Deanne, are you being realistic? And mm-hmm. he told me that 
I, 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 my response was, yes, I am. And what I, I had in my hand, I showed him, I showed him my last will and testament that I had just gotten done. I said, this is the reality of what could happen. But ultimately, I truly believe that God is the author and finisher of my life. And that is who really has my life. And so that's where I place my hope. That's where I place my faith. That's who has the last say, not the doctors, you know, not the statistics, not even my own doing and my own will. It's not even up to me. I had gotten to the point where I realized that I had done everything I knew to do mm-hmm. to try to turn things around. And here I was in hospice and it was looking very grim because I had gone for about 40 days where I could no longer eat any solid food. Mm. Um, I was not able to even barely drink any liquids. It would take me about uh, an hour just to drink eight ounces. And of at that my point, drink. the body shuts down. Right. Uh, you know, and I, I, I was gasping for air and mm. I just thought it's only a matter of time. I saw how low my oxygen levels were. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but that's where I, I really believe that when we can kind of tap into that deeper part of our being, which is a spiritual, that opens up a myriad of possibilities, uh, you know, that infinite potential I was talking to you about just for what might seem to be the miraculous to occur. But we have to first believe that that's possible. It sounds to me like one of the things he changed about his experience is that he no longer goes in with the, the perception, the belief, or the expectation that someone's condition will go a certain way, that that's not the point of this experience his time with them. It's more to help them make the most of that journey, whatever they decide to do with it. That's right. Yes, you're exactly right. And to just support them. And that's what he did for me uh, in in many ways. Um, He really did support me. And I I think that, you know, I really saw from this experience that this is true for the doctor, any practitioner that deals with people that are kind of at that end stage of life, to not hold that expectation that you know what's going to happen, how it's all going to unravel, because there's something that conventional medicine does not readily take into account, and it's the resilience, it's the power that's already inherent in us, in our human spirit. When I went to the Hopi Mesas some years ago, the residents there had talked about a study that was done with nearby universities, I think Arizona State, I could be wrong, but I know it's one of the local universities to explore how they were able to grow crops in such an arid environment. And so the Hopi communities had walked them through the entire process of planting and growing and nurturing, taking care of these plants, culling, and the university went, created a similar controlled environment and did the same. Only their crops failed. So like good researchers, they went back ran over what they had done with the local community and said, we did everything. We did everything like you told us to. And this is, it's total little tongue in cheek, but one of the older members of the community said, no, there's, there's one little thing you forgot. And they went, what? He said, you didn't believe. Mm. They said, well, that's, that's, we can't, how, how are we supposed to, how is that supposed to affect? And he said, how is it not? Yes. But belief is huge. How is Um, it not supposed to affect? Right. And it's huge. It's like, you know, when I work with my clients, the ones who doubt the approach, I already kind of know that, you know, I don't know how it's going to work out for them, but it's like, whatever you do, you have to be 
100% in with your belief system. Um, otherwise, it's almost like you self-sabotage by being uncertain or doubtful. It speaks to the question of trust. You're put in a position where you can't trust your body, where you're not sure you can trust the people who are supposedly experts on healing and taking care of you. Your family is unsure of what they can rely on you to do because you're losing the ability to do things for them. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry to cut in here. I mean, when you know, when you said you don't trust, you know, the body, you know, and, and many people were trying to suggest that to me that, oh, your body has betrayed you. That's mm -hmm. why you have cancer. I, I chose to not look at it quite like that because I felt like my body was doing its very best to try to restore me and that if I can support what is already built in as far as the wisdom in each cell, then I might be able to shift this around. But if I, in the back of my mind, feel like, oh, you know, my body's let me down, that will have an effect as well. It's funny. I had a similar conversation with uh, Julie Sayant, who can hear the voices of animals, particularly horses. And the thing that struck me there was so often she said the horses wanted their riders to be happy and were confused as to why they weren't. Mm. and could not some in any way convey that to the person writing them. I'm by and large a skeptic. When people say to me they're psychic, that crystals sing, etc., I'm going to go, okay, tell me how and why. So I can't say I believed, per se, when she was first introducing the idea to me, but I can certainly empathize and understand with the notion that, yes, across the species, one, they, they may both have the desire to be there for each other, but it's difficult to convey that. And you would think that's across species, but what if even with the own, your own body, there can be that barrier in place where, yes, your body is trying to do what is right for you because it is you. It's a part of you. But we like to think of ourselves as something separate from the body and therefore punish it when it doesn't serve us or do what we want it to do. That's exactly right. And I feel like we see that play out, you know, even in our minds, that the mind can often think things. And if it's not in coherence with what's in our heart, uh, ultimately, that's going to have an impact on us as well. I mean, we can try to, you know, trick ourselves into believing, well, this is how it really is, you know, but um, the heart knows. How did you teach yourself to listen to the body and then teach that to others as well? By really closely observing what was going on in my body. And so that's where almost like I, I feel like it was a scientist part of me that was you know, as terrifying as it was to have cancer, the scientist part of me was almost, you know, very interested in seeing, well, what's going on in my body? Why is this <laughs> happening? And, and I would document everything. Mm -hmm. So I, I would look at, you know, the, how the tumor was growing or not growing. And I was tracking, I was making graphs of the tumor volume and my, my cancer marker and uh, seeing, well, if I ate this, what would happen? If I did this, what, 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 how would that impact it? How did you learn to listen and teach others to do that as well? Although, yeah. I, I do have to ask you, have you read Oliver Sacks? Uh, no, I have not. Oliver Sacks, in his last years, had a form of cancer, I forget which off the top of my head, that he knew would be the last thing he... I'm usually better about this, but I, I'm i sorry. Oh, no worries. My no dad, worries. <laughs> my, dad is, my dad is on another round of cancer. It's only prostate. I say only, ah. but, you know, the treatment is far different than what it was the last time, and better, mm -hmm. but still deleterious and invasive. And it's it, as much as you can train yourselves, and I'm going to leave this in because this is part of the experience, as much as you can train yourself to be a professional performer on a show, it is amazing how that one thought or word just immediately tripped up my thoughts. Sax knew when he had cancer that he would not live for much longer. And he too decided, like you did in that moment, to document 
what the experience was like, even what his own mind was like as he took different medications and how his thoughts deteriorated to the point of writing down a journal down to scribbling and gibberish to open later and go, huh, what does that reflect or indicate about what happens to me then? Yes. And I I just feel like in observing how my body was reacting to different things that I was trying, that's how I became in tune, you know, but it was a struggle because, you know, I often felt like, oh, you know, I think there's a language that the body Mm. has and I'm not sure I'm fluent in it yet, you know? And so it was through reading and through working with therapists that I began to understand, um, you know, just how to interpret. I, I had severe edema um, during the, the end stage uh, where I would gain um, about 10 pounds of fluid in just one day. Mm. And it was it was painful, very, very painful. My legs would swell up. My, my feet just it didn't feel like the skin on my feet could stretch that much and it was going to crack. Um, and I, I couldn't bend over. My fingers couldn't bend. I couldn't put on my socks. I could barely move in the bed because the weight of the water, mm-hmm. the fluid was just too much. And none of the doctors could really explain to me, well, why does that happen? But yet it is common, you know, in certain kinds of cancers that people start to retain a lot of fluid. And I couldn't find any documentation in the medical literature. And so I just started to reflect on it and to pray and what came to me, and this is my own personal inter- interpretation of that, um, you know, condition, is that the cancer in my body, uh, the tumors were creating so much toxic metabolic waste that my body was creating all this fluid to try to buffer, mm-hmm. you know, the the important organs like my liver, my kidneys, um, to, to try to buffer it from this metabolic toxins and waste. And so I I chose not to look at what was going on as, you know, my body or this disease is out to get me and to kill me. But instead, you know, you can choose to look at what's happening through the lens of love, you know, as opposed to fear. It's it's so fascinating you use that phrase because when Oliver Sacks spoke about these discoveries in his last moments of life, he said he spoke of them with joy. There was still a delight to be had in these final moments, and he was going to take every last ounce of it with him yes. and share as much as he could on the way. Yes, yes. And, and I have to say there were times when I felt that joy in spite of what was going on in my body. And it's something that is just very profound because it, it really gives you a freedom that no matter what's happening, there, there's, a, there's a place within your being that just cannot be touched or impacted no matter what's going on around it. And to the way you describe the body, it almost, to me, it seems more like in this observation that you are witnessing a community react and then take conflicting measures to to heal and take care of itself, but that the body is not a unified thing in some ways. There are so many other minds, in a sense, or lives within it that try to do what they can or as best they can, even if in some ways, shape, or forms, those two conflict. Right. You spoke to me before about this idea of bio-individuality, that we are all emotionally and physically different and need to be cared for differently. However, that does tend to conflict with our laws, which require standardized care. How do you, within this realm of professional, personal health coaching, health care, help people navigate or understand or realize that? What I tell people is that even though I did these things to recover you know, and a large part of what I did was not only the physical aspects, but it was the emotional aspects. Everyone is different. What has brought someone to this particular point in life 
is totally different than someone else. And so even though, you know, the disease or the diagnosis might be exactly the same, the path towards recovery and healing is different for each person because it's a different set of experiences and, you know, exposures and, you know, just the emotional uh, reaction and how, you know, people um, manage their stress. All of this comes into play. And so that's how I explain this concept of bio-individuality because one person, you know, they might be, you know, quite evolved spiritually, but maybe, you know, on, on a physical level, they've not been caring for their body. And so I would address how I help them in a much different way. Mm-hmm. Whereas I've had some people tell me, oh, you know, I have, uh, you know, that part all figured out. I need help in this area. And so it very much is a very individual path and journey for each person. I should introduce you to these authors who wrote the book in Sicknesses and Health. One of the things they discovered in their research and from their own experience was that people often in these moments of injury, of illness, of ailment, would realize or fall back to things that they had not grown from, not truly developed in terms of their relationships or their own selves even, and discover, as you said, in some ways that not that they felt stunted, but just that they had ever felt the need or the time to put into the spiritual life or the physical life or the emotional life. Until now, suddenly there was no time. That's right. Yeah, that, and it's so true. I think for all of us that, you know, when things are going well, uh, we just kind of tend to focus on the external more. And, and maybe there are some people who, you know, are kind of more in tune. But I think the vast majority of people, it, it really does take a crisis, and that's where the crisis becomes an opportunity to gain that inner awareness. I want to touch upon some things you've told me before that bring joy to your life, in particular one that used to be a source of fear, insects and bugs. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. So, you know, my earliest recollection of spiders and insects, um, as a a baby, I was not afraid of them. I would try to pick up spiders. Mm -hmm. But then what happened is uh, the fears of, you know, those who were caring for me uh, transferred to me as I became older to where... I was just terrified of them. And that terror kind of stayed with me the majority of my life until after I recovered from cancer. um, And in that recovery process, when I was going through physical and occupational rehabilitation, that's where I gained a newfound appreciation for life and all life. Um, And so I would go on these walks in, in the woods outside and just felt like Every single creature I came upon, you know, a a bug, whether it's a praying mantis or those, um, you know, those bugs that, the stink bugs, you know, (laughs) (laughs) uh, that people tend to not like. Well, I was fascinated by them and I I would take pictures. I was just amazed at the intricate details. And as I took a photograph of this praying mantis, he actually turned and, and looked at me. And when I looked in its eyes, I just felt like I was looking into some being that was intelligent, you know, and and, and it was just very profound. And so now that's how I, I look at, you know, even like bees and, and things that, you know, people are afraid might sting you. I mean, I, I'm just fascinated with how, <laughs> you know, how they can even fly because supposedly the aerodynamics of their body being that much bigger than their wings, uh, they, they technically shouldn't be able to fly, but they yet they do. <laughs> <laughs> that is and, almost a perfect analogy for the experience of surviving when you shouldn't. Everything about this should bring you crashing down to the ground. That's exactly right. 
Maybe you'll appreciate this. I was eating, I think, some yogurt outside the other day, and this bee comes and lands on my spoon. And I have mm -hmm. a dog. You know, when you have a dog or a cat, you tend to react to their behavior in certain ways. And without missing a beat, I looked at it and I said, no, that's not for you. And it sat there for a moment and then looked at me and buzzed away. And then I thought, why did I choose to react to that the same way I did with my dog? It wasn't a, this was just a trained, you want my food, you're not allowed to have my food. No, you can't. And it reacted, whether it was just to big looming thing, paying attention to it or to the toenail, I, don't, I will never know. But I chose in that moment to react to it as I would to my dog the same. That's amazing. That speaks to how we're actually all connected. And, and so you in that moment chose to honor that in the bee, that there's this intelligence and there's an energetic connection and, and the bee picked up on it. You know, I, I've had family, I have family who conduct, who practice Reiki, among other holistic healing arts. And it's hard because everything we see in our common research says this stuff shouldn't or doesn't, or we don't know if it works, but it seems to work enough for some people, particularly and in significant fashions, I should say too. So how do you help people decide whether you are the right person to help them? How do you help them figure out what paths to take, whether it is to go to seek a spiritual professional, or do you work in tandem with all these individuals to help heal someone? To get to your first question, I basically help people to see the approach that I want to take to help support them in their recovery and how I have a holistic approach. And so if a person doesn't believe in that, then, you know, I pretty much will let them know that it may not be that successful for you if if you have doubts or if you don't believe, and that's okay because it's it's your journey. And I do work in tandem with other professionals. There are certain clients that I have that that have a whole entire uh, health support team, mm -hmm. and so you know I'm just one of them, and um, I will look at you know their lab reports and and things like that because sometimes. I find that it, it can actually serve in a complementary way because, you know, their doctor may not have the time to go through every single lab value or, you know, notice that, oh, this one is low and what might that mean? And so it's, it's really a complementary way that I work with the team of, you know, the client. So in cases like that where you see something that you have questions or thoughts about, do you then give your client the questions to ask their professionals so they can figure out what that information is conveying or what else they need to find or learn to derive more meaning and value from that? Yes, that's exactly what I do. I, I give them the actual questions to ask their doctor. And I also even make requests that their doctor run this other lab that they did not run before. How receptive do you find medical professionals are to someone who is, you're a trained scientist and a trained professional, but you're not a, you're not an oncologist. No, I'm not. And so, you know, it really varies with each particular doctor. Some are quite receptive, others, and I'll give you an example. You know, I was with um, one of my clients with her at her oncologist appointment and, um, you know, was able to hear her oncologist tell her that she was in full and complete remission. And it was, it was incredible. But what really struck me was that the oncologist did not ask, well, what is it that you're doing? I mean, there was no curiosity or, you know, just wanting to learn. Mm. And, and so I got to see the full spectrum of those who were open and supportive, um, including, you know, some of the doctors who had encouraged me to embark, you know, in a nutritional holistic approach 
versus, uh, you know, the, on the other end of the spectrum, those who don't have any curiosity at all to go beyond what they've been taught in medical school. I want to, before we finish up today, to explore maybe your most difficult and your most wonderful experiences serving as a coach to people. My most difficult experience of serving as a coach is when people come to me and it's it's almost like they're they're at that end stage and I know that it's going to take basically 120% effort to be able to uh reverse, you know, their condition. I, and I struggle sometimes when some of these clients they they do place a great deal of weight on what their doctors tell them or, and, and the whole entire staff of, of the hospital, in fact. You know, and I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. One of my clients came to me. She was very strong, strong physically, strong emotionally, strong spiritually. But at one point in time, she ended up in a hospital and they put her on an IV that basically created edema, this fluid retention. Mm. I saw it and, you know, because I experienced it myself, I talked to the nurse and I said, you know, is it possible that you can just kind of slow down the rate of the IV fluid and actually even allow her to drink some water instead of forcing in all the fluid through the IV Mm -hmm. because she was swelling up? And, you know, I was told, no, um, this is what we have to do. And it got to the point where she was no longer able to eat. So they, they had her on a feeding tube. And when I looked at what was in the feeding tube, I could see that it was 15% dextrose. And so I talked to the dietitian at the hospital and I asked, um, you know, someone who is an end stage cancer should not be fed something that has dextrose, which is a form of sugar, because that's going to be basically, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> added fuel for cancer growth. Yeah. And, and and the dietitian told me, well, no, there's no evidence to support that. And, you know, I wasn't going to get into a fight with her, but I, I try to basically, you know, educate, you know, her, her caregivers, my client's caregivers into what they needed to do. But unfortunately, there was not a lot of follow-up probably because it was so overwhelming. And so unfortunately, you know, that client didn't make it. And And that's hard for me when I see things that I feel like could be done, but then it's not my role as a health coach to get in there and say, okay, this is what needs to be done. I'm, I'm not someone who is directive. You know, I give guidance, mm-hmm. um, but ultimately what I do is I, I educate and I try to empower as best as I can, but it's up to the person and up to the person's immediate support system to actually follow through and to implement uh, what I might recommend. Was she fully cognizant throughout this experience? Does she have a living will in place? She was fully cognizant, and I saw so much strength in this person that I I really felt like her demise was 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 actually in fact due to the medical treatment. You know, and it's hard for me, but I I I knew what my role was, mm-hmm. and that you know I I can basically you know make whatever I you know my statements to those caring for her, but beyond that, um, I couldn't do no more. You know, that was probably one of the more um, difficult things that, that I had to deal with and, and you know, have to deal with to varying degrees. My best moment mm-hmm. as a health coach 
is seeing, you know, someone in, you know, full and complete remission where, you know, all the cancer tumors disappear. You know, one of my clients was able to cancel her surgery and moved on with her life. And so I see this where I see uh, their conditions completely resolve and there's just no words that can capture that. And I don't feel like, you know, that it was my doing because I don't, I can't heal. That's not in, within my power to do. I'm simply the person who is there to be with someone, someone to be accountable to, someone to support. And when I see these, you know, seemingly miraculous turnarounds, um, then I feel like what I went through with my own experience was worth it, even if it was just to help one person. When I was at USC, Ramon, Rocky, Kalish were two of my teachers. They were for all in the family for MASH. And Irma shared a story one day of meeting with a family friend of hers who confessed over lunch that she had suffered breast cancer. And Irma asked her to walk her through, well, how did you deal with this? How did you treat it? How did you come, you know, how did you learn to accept it or to treat it, to recover or try to recover? And her friend said, you know, when Edith had that scare and finally decided to get tested, I realized I should too. And Irma's sitting there going, I wrote that episode. But the interesting, the interesting thing there as she shared the story to us was that she didn't feel the need to tell her friend that. Just this realization that the story she had told had changed someone else's life in such a profound way. That meant more to her than any award, any accolade, any recognition ever would for that work. That's exactly right. When I embarked on this journey to try to help others, for me, it's, it's not about the money. It's not about the recognition. It's really simply to know that I've been able to serve in some way. One last question then, and it's the one I usually end with. What's the one question no one ever asked you that you wish they would? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I remember having this conversation and, oh my goodness, I don't even know if I had an answer to that. <laughs> Most people figure it out when I ask them, uh, and not a moment before. <laughs> <laughs> I might need a moment to think about that. That's um, fine. I'll go cue up some Jeopardy music. <laughs> Maybe it's what is the one thing that that I feel is so instrumental in healing and in, in changing someone's condition? Do you think there is an answer to that, or do you think that answer depends on the person themselves? I think it actually depends on the person themselves, but I, I do think that there is... A, a sort of universal um, force in this world that is just incredibly powerful in in shifting, you know, a person's life wherever they may be at. You know, the answer from my perspective is that it's it's love to choose love over fear. <laughs> I'm laughing because you reminded me of a question that my screenwriting teacher Sid Field, and I've probably mentioned this on the show before. He would always ask of a character, "What are they afraid of?" Is it the material thing? Is it a physical thing, an emotional one? That was never the thing he wanted to know. What he truly and genuinely wanted to know is what do they cherish, want, or desire above all else? And it's so fascinating talking to people about their work, helping folks tell and write their stories about their characters or their own lives, how often that question arises. Because if you can answer it, then you know why you're doing what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's so hard to answer or at least admit that you have the right one too. Do you think at this point in your life you have an answer to that? I feel like I do, and it's to allow 
love to flow in and through me. Agape. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, in an unconditional way. And so it means, you know, that if if we're really to let go of fear, and, and, and that comes in various forms, you know, fear can 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 cause us to uh you know cast a quick judgment on a situation or a person and it may not be like that at all we have a choice in every moment um to decide are we going to react to this situation or this person out of fear or out of love i like that diana it's been great talking to you today and i want to thank you for sharing your time with us where can people reach you, find you, stay in touch with you? Uh, people can find me on my website. It's deanna1.com. That's D-E-A-N-N-A-W-O-N.com. And um, if they go there, they can schedule a free consultation with me. Um, they can also download my um, free ebook on the sugar and cancer connection. And we will be sure to include all those links in the show notes at the end. Deanna, again, thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us today. Are you by any chance still thinking of starting a podcast or a show of your own? I'm sure you have an incredible number of stories to share. Yes, I actually am thinking about it. In fact, I have all the equipment to start one, but I haven't taken that first step yet. But that's something I am seriously thinking about um, because many people are asking me about starting a podcast. And I, I want to be able to bring on, you know, once if I do start it, you know, not only uh, different, you know, doctors and mm -hmm. holistic practitioners, but also fellow cancer survivors and thrivers. Absolutely, because I think it's it's important to hear from everyone who is involved in this part of someone's life. That's right. And I think it's in, you know, listening to someone else's story or journey, it often can shed light on what we're going through. And so it helps to enlighten and empower and also to give hope. <laughs> I just, I'm just finishing my side now, but the, the thing I came to talking about there as to why we tell stories was that the best ones, at least the ones we like, are the ones that give us hope for a better life. Oh, that's incredible. That's great. <laughs> so I'm just laughing that you came to that same point without you know, from a, a different story, a different time, a different mind. It helps me feel like there's something true to that beyond my own life. Thank you again. I, I'm looking forward to seeing your show appear. I know people I would ask or want to see there as well, professionals, folks who survived. And I look forward to hearing it. Thank you again, Deanna. And see you guys next time. Thanks so much, Jarrett. So that's all for tonight. If you like what you hear and you want to show you as a born, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash Diaries. That's with a Y for a dollar or more. There are all kinds of rewards, including access to our online workshop and Discord. Of course, if you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or have us revise, you can write to us and my name, dot my last, and you me tires. See you all next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.